Welcome to part two of our summer movie preview and part two of our interview with Henry Gross right here on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome or welcome back to another edition of On Screen and Beyond, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener. We are back with our part two of our summer movie preview here at On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 550 of the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week, like I said earlier, part two of our summer movie preview and part two of our interview with singer-songwriter Henry Gross. And we got a lot of stuff coming your way. If uh, you remember, like uh, last time, he was uh, just heading into Nashville. Sound like, a, you know, an episode of Batman. Last time on our episode, you know. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, Henry Gross is coming in for part two of On Screen and Beyond's interview with him. And uh, we've got a lot of things going on, so uh, let's get right into it. It's time for Remake Madness as far as the summer movie coming your way in July and August, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Part two of our summer movie preview of Remake Madness. We have a couple extras here. Cinderella arrives on July 16th in a modern musical adaptation, and uh, that's, uh, you know, it's 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 a little just a story of Cinderella. We've had many of them over the years, and uh, this is another one. It's going to be a musical, though, a modern musical. And the remake uh, from Theme Park Ride to Big Screen Movie brings Jungle Cruise on July 30th with Dwayne Johnson to the big screen. And on August 27th, well, the Beatles' Let It Be film has been remade, remade twisted around and you know showing different clips and things like that and it is being made into the beatles get back and that comes from peter jackson so that's going to be something to look out for here it's really good and that's it for remake madness coming up next on on screen to be on as far as our summer movie preview part two upcoming new movies Upcoming new movies in our summer movie preview here, part two. On July 2nd, Chris Pratt stars in a sci-fi thriller called The Tomorrow War. On July 9th, it will be Black Widow heading into theaters. And July 23rd, Olds is going to be coming to uh, theaters. And uh, M. Night Shyamalan is the one who gives us that one. And Respect, a biopic about Aretha Franklin, comes our way on August 18th. And on August 20th, Look for Tom Hanks in BIOS. And, uh, of course, like I said, things could change. We never know what's going to happen. They're bouncing things around, so things could change. But uh, that's what they're calling it for right now. And that's it for upcoming new movies. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, let's go down to Sequel City and find out what's coming your way as far as part two of our summer movie preview right here on On Screen and Beyond. Part two of our summer movie preview gives us sequels and sequels galore. It looks like the Forever Purge continues the Purge saga, and that comes our way on July 9th. Space Jam, 
A New Legacy is here on July 16th in Hotel Transylvania, Transformania. We'll be in theaters on July 23rd. Snake Eyes uh, continues or sort of spins off the G.I. Joe story, and that comes your way on July 23rd. And on August 6th, The Suicide Squad will be hitting theaters. And that's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we have TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time. Well, I'm just going to tell you once again about this event that's coming up because you don't want to miss it. Viral Vignettes. And that uh, you can uh, see Barry Boswick, Linda Pearl, Gail O'Grady, John Snyder, uh, Max Gale Jr., Donnie Most, uh, Renee Taylor, and a whole host of other great actors and actresses who are going to be helping out to bring some cheer to everybody and also to uh, help raise money for the Actors Fund. Now, what's going to happen on Saturday, May 8th at 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Time or 8 to 11 Eastern Time, you can catch Viral Vignettes. Now, that's going to be at viralvignettes.com, and that's V-I-R-A-L-V-I-G-N-E-T-T-E-S.com. And like I said, a lot of actors are going to be performing short uh, comedy skits, and it's a very special one-time encore of viral vignettes and an opportunity for viewers to contribute to the Actors Fund to help actors who need financial assistance during these hard times that we're in. And it supports everyone in film, not just the, the actors and not the ones that are making millions of dollars. You know, there's not many of those. There's a lot of people involved with film and theater and TV and music and opera and radio and dance that uh, are having a hard time. And they're not working and they don't have millions of dollars. So uh, if you'd like to help out or if you can, I, we know everybody can't, but if you'd like to help, you can check that out. Like I said, it's viralvignettes.com on Saturday, May 8th from 5 to 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 to 11 Eastern Time. So uh, you might want to check that out. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we have part two of our interview with Henry Gross. And uh, where we left off last time, it was uh, Henry was just about to go to Nashville. So we'll continue there with Henry Gross right here on On Screen and Beyond. So, you know, it was just very tough. And then I went to Nashville in 1986, and you'd go to see, like, a publisher, and next to his desk he had three guitars. Whereas in New York it was all business, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Nashville was all about the song. And these people grew up on country music, and, you know, they had guys like Conway Twitty that started as a rock and roller, it's only make-believe, and wound up, you know, with, a who knows, 200 country hits or whatever he had. Right, yeah. And so... And they had Johnny Cash, and they, you know they had all these, all kind of people. You know, Waylon Jennings. There were all these amazing artists that were based out of Nashville, and of course George Jones okay. and Tammy Wynette. You know, I was hearing all these legendaries. I actually wound up doing one night. I did a show in Jacksonville with uh, um, Loretta Lynn. I mean, what a thrill that was for me. I mean, 
you ain't woman enough to take my man. I mean, I mean these, these are classic records to me. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and of course, you know, being, you know, just, you know, being three hours from Memphis was enough of a draw by itself. Mm-hmm. Because just breathing, in some sense, imagining, you know, I remember the first time I went to Memphis in 1969, all I could think about was, Elvis might be in this weather pattern. <laughs> I might be, I might be, if it's raining, I might be in the same rain that Elvis is in. Because growing up, that was the guy for me. Right, yeah. I wore out, in 1957, Elvis's Golden Hits Volume 1 came out. And my sister and I had a copy of that record, and I just wore that thing out, man. Well, you, you know, Henry, I, I, I got to tell you, though, some of the songs, especially on your new album, um, I've noticed that I was listening to them, and I'm thinking to myself, I can picture Elvis singing this song. It was funny well, that you said that. Especially too clever for my own. Yes, yes, one. exactly. That's the one. <laughs> I mean, sure, because I, you know, I tried. I did everything I could do. You know, not you know, it's hard because you know, you know, all these great Lieber and Stoller songs. You know, and Elvis turned everything he touched. You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Mystery Train, probably the, you know, one of maybe the greatest record ever, Elvis's version of Mystery Train. I mean, his version of Blue Moon of Kentucky is, mm-hmm. you know, yep. it's absurd. It's just incredible. He took what was a, you know, a bluegrass ballad and turned it into rockabilly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy was just, you know, he's like he was shot out of a cannon. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, because of the singing with my mom, you know, who, uh, you know, I had a great influence from, uh, from the Beach Boys. Yes. Because I just love that. But I would say to you, aside from Elvis Presley, I'll never forget my mom. You know, see, everybody, you know, now everything is Spotify. And if you want to hear a record that was cut by, you know, uh, in 1902 by some, some group, you know, that, that previously was only available on what were called race records, you know. Mm-hmm. Now you can find copies of those things. Uh, you know, they're all, everything's on YouTube or online, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, you, you can hear Sitting on Top of the World, you know, and all those songs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that are absolutely phenomenal records. And you can hear them anytime you want. You don't have to search for them. You, know, you want to hear... You know, uh, Don Gardner and, uh, what's her name? Dee Dee Ford doing, you know, I need your love in the everyday. Wow, 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 wow. You can get it. Yeah. You can yeah. just click your fingers and get it. Well, back then, we always had, we all had little transistor radios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could, it was like the size of your hand. Yeah. And in New York City, on a clear night, you could get WKBW in Buffalo. Oh, I love that now, station. <laughs> now, let me. Uh, did you know the station? Oh yeah, I listen. Well, I listen to Jack did. Armstrong. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the thing about KBW. Growing up in New York City, we only got. Every, you know, they only played a song on WMCA or WABC. They only played songs after there were already hits all around the country. Mm-hmm. New York was the last station they wouldn't add a record unless it was already sold nearly a million copies mm-hmm. you know like shannon was all over the country it sold like you know it, it had sold like four or five hundred thousand copies 
Then they added it on WABC and it went over a million in like in, in a month. Yeah. You know, because there was 20 million people in the New York area right. buying records and listening. So, but the thing, the genius of getting KBW radio from Buffalo was they were playing songs months before they ever got to New York and most didn't. Mm-hmm. I remember a couple of songs. We were doing Hey Joe by the Leaves in my, in my first band and people thought we wrote it. I heard it on KBW and I knew it, you know, I listened three, four nights in a row with my pen and paper trying to get all the lyrics, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and so we were playing these songs. There was a song I remember to get some song of like, you gotta stop and get a ticket. I don't know who did that record. You gotta stop and get a ticket. I don't know what it was about, but I just loved something about that record. And there were many others. Mm-hmm. But here's the big hook. On a really clear Sunday night, you could get a radio station from uh, Haywood, California, believe it or not, which is wow. right next to Berkeley. Now, that was all the way across the country, and I could get it in Brooklyn. Holy and cow. it was a guy on there called Brother Al, and you could go online and look him up. And this was the, he had the, he was a, a gospel, he had a gospel show. But he was also like a faith healer, and he would get people that were crippled to, to get out of their wheelchairs and walk on the radio. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I mean, you got to stick, stick with this. It's brilliant. So he had a great act, brother. I said, send me $5 and I will pray for you. You know, and, and, you know, he would cure people on the radio. Yeah. And he would play all these great Thomas Dorsey songs, you know, that Mahalia Jackson would be on there and James Cleveland. And I remember singing along with those, you know, down by the riverside, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of those singers, I mean, Mahalia Jackson, I probably have, I don't know, 20 of her albums. And I, you know, I would collect those records because I thought, this is the greatest music can't get better than this, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we weren't hearing Little Richard at that time. We were hearing Pat Boone. It wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized that, you know, all these great records were not being played. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I wasn't hearing them. Yeah. You know, they, you know, they, they were playing copies of the records, you know, because of the, really the terrible racism that was going on in the, in, in you know, everywhere, let alone the music business. Right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, that was pretty horrible. And, um, so, you know, we would be doing these, these tunes. And my mom walked by my room one night when I was singing along with the radio. And she said, was that you singing? Because she realized I could stair step, you know, and that's like when little Richard would sing, I'm ready, set, go cat, go, I got a girl that I love, so and mm-hmm. I'm ready, and he'd go, I'm ready, ready, Teddy, I'm ready. And he could step down. And that they call that stair step. Well, I was doing it along with the gospel singers. And my mom thought, oh, you know, this little maniac can sing. <laughs> I, you know, so that's what happened. Once she knew I could sing, all bets were off. You know, she was all over me on that. But it was Brother Al from Haywood, California. Wow. And yeah, and I never knew where Haywood was. And I got a, a gig a few years ago to do my one hit Wanderer show in some town right, I think it was Walnut Creek or Walnut something. Creek. right outside. Hey, yeah, yeah, right I know where that. I've, been, I've been there many times. <laughs> yeah, so I did, I did my one hit Wanderer show there. And it was right outside of Haywood. And I was, I was going there and I went, this is where Haywood is. I've been to Berkeley. I didn't realize Haywood was right next to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was all 
life is funny. Everything's tied together. And um, so I had those record deals. I ended up moving to Nashville in 1986. And in 1986, in, in, in I made a demo with some friends of mine, uh, a great uh, R&B drummer uh, named Chucky Burke, who you know played for Cash McCall and Isaac Hayes and all these people, mm-hmm. and a guy called Mike Chapman, who I met. Now, this is very funny. Because here I was, a New York City Jewish guy, with a black drummer, Chucky Burke, and and Mike Chapman, who was who played at Muscle Shoals' studio, who grew up in the, you know, in in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, the, we we were going around as a trio, and there was, I mean, really, you know, it was pretty crazy. We were playing these places in Arkansas, and you know, it wasn't like we had someone in our group for everyone to hate. We had everyone in our group for everyone to hate. <laughs> Equal opportunity. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, you know. We, you know. If you hated black people, we had Chucky. If you hated Jews, you had me. And if and if you hated a southerner for playing in a band with a Jew and a black man, you had Mike. So, <laughs> it was really, it was really one for the books. But we played all over the place, and we ended up um, making going into a studio just with an eight-track TIAC, running off some songs. We played about. Eight, we played about I think it was about 12 songs I'd written and we played them in about an hour we did like one take of each of them live and then I over at uh, Mark Bright who became a very popular producer uh, in Nashville um, over at his house I overdubbed like an extra guitar on a song and maybe did a harmony but these were demos mm-hmm, yep. and Mark was using this demo as a way of getting a job at EMI Publishing you know so it was good for him and it was good for me and we ended up finishing this thing anyway. A guy called Ralph Murphy, who was partners with Roger Cook, uh, the great songwriter I was talking about before, and uh, Roger Cook and um, and him, he had a publishing company called Pick P I C the letter A L I C Pickalick, mm-hmm. which is very clever, and that Pickalick Publishing. And uh, Ralph signed me to Pickalick as a writer, and he took this little demo tape I made. To, to meet him and got me a record deal with Sonnet, which was Abba's label out of Sweden and London. So we went over there and I was my first time to Europe. We went all over Europe for a month. I was over there. I think I stayed there for five, six weeks. Ralph stayed a couple of weeks. And, um, and then Gary, as I was saying with Ben Bucky Baxter opened the studio and no one had been in there. And Bucky just said, Hey, go in there and use the studio and, you know, see how it goes. So they had an engineer around there called Tim Coates, who's still a dear friend and a great engineer. He engineers Gary Talent's records, his own solo records, and, and a lot of people's music. Tim is a really brilliant engineer and one of the best live engineers you could ever find. I had him do One Hit Wander a couple of times, and, oh, man, he, you know, he make one guy sound like an orchestra. He's just He knows how to do it. Wow. And so I went in there, and I cut 20 songs, and I put them out on a record called Nothing But Dreams. I made... A record on my own label you know having done the, you know i did two albums for um sonnet and we didn't get a hit you know and then so we moved on and i ended up putting out uh, a record on uh on my own label called zelda named after my mom oh, yeah. and i've done you know how many you know, you'd have to look at wikipedia there's about 10 of those records and i'm i'm mostly done with another one now and uh 
you know, I thought I wouldn't do anymore after the last one. You know, because I had CD like one, I did nothing but dreams and I'm hearing things and one hit wander and right as rain and foreverland and mm-hmm. mixed messages and stories I've lived to tell New Orleans, New Orleans, uh, rhymes and misdemeanors. <laughs> I mean, and each one of these records had like 20 songs on it. Right. So they're yeah, all like I noticed that. Yeah. Because I write a lot and it's well, funny, you know, the, the current wisdom people say, well, you know, you shouldn't put more than 14 songs, you know, 12 to 14 songs on a record because that's all people can absorb. They don't want to give you your time. You know, they, they, they just, you know, they really want to hear half a dozen songs and if they like it, you know, they'll play them over and over. And, and the, what I found out with people that like my music is that, you know, it takes so much time and effort to make a great cover and I work with this brilliant guy out of Dallas called Steve Satterwhite, who I met in New York. He's done all of all, all but one of the covers for my um, solo CDs. Uh, he was we weren't working together when we we didn't he didn't do the very first one. A uh, great uh, pop artist called John Bader, the guy that did all the books where he paints the you know the old diners. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Bader did the first cover for me. Mm. I was brilliant artist lives in nashville and um great talent great man and uh and so steve has been doing these covers and it's such you know to get the cover and have it look like you saw the last cover and you've seen the other cds and he's just does great artwork and it's time consuming it's really a big deal to get the picture and make it look right mm-hmm. so i i think you know so i don't do a record you know, every six months i do one every couple of years and um, I find that my fans, you know, for people that don't like my music, one song is too much. And for people that get what I do, um, 16, 17 songs is not enough. Yeah. yeah. You well, know, they get excited about it and they listen to them, but then next week they want more of them. And I go, hey, come on, man, I just spent a year and a half writing songs. But, you know, um, I'm 70 years old and I, you know, I always wonder... I've been working with this guy called John McLean here in South Florida. And even though I lived in Nashville, I ran into John about 20 years ago. I bought a house in Naples, a little house. And I, cause my wife and I like the beach and I wanted to get out of the cold in Nashville in the winter a lot, you know, and I, we'd go back and forth for years. And, uh, I love Nashville too. I mean, it's an amazing, obviously, I mean, seems like everyone in the United States is moving there now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, well, because, and I know why. It's the last stop on the train if you're a songwriter. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever level of songwriter you happen to be, you can find a hundred, no, a thousand people to write with. And, and that's how you learn, and that's how you get better. Yeah. yeah. And so, whereas in New York... You know, you've got to know somebody. You know somebody. How are you going to meet people? It's so difficult. Mm-hmm. And for me in particular, I'm not a guy that goes out to clubs and bars, you know. Yeah. But yeah. in Nashville, you can just, you know, be getting lunch. And I'm, Here's the great. Here's how it works. I'm sitting in this place. There was a tavern on the row. On Music Row, there's a street where all the publishing houses are or were. I don't keep up with it. But I think they're still there. And a lot of studios, you know. And so when you, I moved to town in 86, I was out all day long going to publishers, trying to meet other writers to write with like you do, you know? 
you went to the popular watering holes and hung out and met people. So I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting at the bar having a beer, and there's a guy next to me, and he says, hey, uh, is it your songwriter? I said, yeah. And he said, uh, oh, really, did you write anything I might know? And I said, well, and I named some stuff, and, and he knew my stuff. And I said, and I said, yeah, I did this album you might know called Plug Me Into Something. I had some song and had a big record called Shannon. And he went, oh, wow. And I said, you know, are you a songwriter? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, you know, and I was talking to this guy. We'd introduced ourselves. I said, I'm Henry. And he said, I'm Dwayne. And I said, okay. So I said, well, you know, you're a writer too. I said, wow, man, do I know any of your songs? And he said, well, he said, do you know the song Mr. Blue? And I, I almost, I'm telling you, man. I was I couldn't believe I'm talking to Dwayne Blackwell. Mm-hmm. The guy wrote, "I'm uh, Mr. Blue." Yeah. Wow, wow. When I say I'm sorry, ooh, da, 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 da. I mean, give me a break. It's one of the songs of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. And I'm sitting with the guy that made it up. Huh. And you know, and I thought, I love this town. <laughs> you know honestly and because i'd had a you know a bunch of the radio records and a couple of pretty pretty big hits in nashville that people would talk to me you know it's hard you can't just get off the bus and sit down with the, the great writers you know yeah yeah eventually i met henry paul down there who's one still one of my greatest friends in the world and Henry, you know, is the lead singer of the Outlaws. The Outlaws, yes. He was at the Henry Paul band and, of course, the country band Blackhawk. And I think they sold four or five million records. Yeah. And I had several cuts on their records. I had a big hit with Henry called Big Guitar, which I have finally made my own version of for this album, the hmm. next album I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. Which, which it, I, don't, I'm, I can't be sure until I'm done with the record, but it's looking like it's going to be called Limited Visionary. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. And uh, what happened in, in 2017? You released three albums in a year. Okay, this is a bit. Okay, this is. Thank you for asking this because I would have forgotten about it. You yeah, know, this I is crazy. Done, I mean, nobody releases worked, three albums in a year. <laughs> well, and the thing is, these are not like these are not these are real productions. I mean, you know the records. Yeah. These are these are not like demos. These are masters. Mm-hmm. And I've decided that some people want to have Rolls Royce cars or, you know, race Ferraris or whatever. And I want to make, wanted to make records. So whatever my wife has been great and whatever money we make, we, you know, if we can pay our bills and, and whatever's left over goes to, um, recording. Wow. And I found a guy called John McLean, who is as close to genius as anybody will ever meet. Uh, John, I mean, this all happened. A guy called Mike Shannenberger down here in Naples. Somebody introduced me to him. I can't remember who. I'm thinking I do know who. But anyway, I meet this guy. I go see him play one night in this little place called the Sea Witch. He's got a little band. And the guy's a good, you know, uh, I see this guy Shannenberger. He says, and, and I'm talking to him. And, I, and Gary Talent calls me up. This is how it happened. He says he's doing a charity album for um, St. Jude's. And so he's getting all his friends to do a Christmas song. And I had a Christmas song that I wrote. I wrote one Christmas song, and Gary loved it. Oh, what a Christmas. Mm -hmm. So he said, just take your guitar, go somewhere, and sing the song and send it to me. Just, you know, your guitar and your voice. I'll put it up because I love it. I said, okay. 
So I didn't know where to go down here, you know, in South Florida. I didn't know anybody. And Mike Shannonberg is just me. He says, I, I, I got a guy he plays, I play with sometime called John McClain, and he's got a little studio, and he's great. So I went over to his house, and uh, he had a little studio. So I go in there to cut the sweater Christmas, and I sing it. I, I put down a guitar to a click, you know, in the tempo we liked, and I sang it. That way, you know, we could get a nice different reverb on the guitar and on the voice mm-hmm. and make it sound like a record. So I played it, and John says to me, he says, you know, uh, I I played I played drums, and I said, "Really?" I said, "We don't have a bass player." He says, "I play bass." Now a lot of guys tell you this, and it turns out he plays alto t- and tenor sax as good as anybody in America or anywhere. He plays drums like like a like a, a, a triple scale drummer. He plays bass as good as anyone. He plays keyboards to die for he arranges strings and things he's the guy's brilliant i never met anyone like him in my life most guys that play a lot of instruments maybe play one really well mm-hmm. yeah but i've brought some of the best musicians in the world around to see john like you know you know jonathan edwards lives down this you know, just he moved down here you know he's a bundle buddy of mine and you know he, he saw john play one night he lost his mind I mean, I brought Pete Antonio, Pete Antel from New York. He's making records when I was in diapers. <laughs> he was cutting, cutting great records. And, uh, and Pete saw John and thought, well, that's the best musician I've ever seen. And he's, we became, you know, I've been working with John for, I don't know, since, you know, it's probably, <laughs> I don't know, 15 years. Hmm. And so I'm able to realize you know, it costs a lot of money to do it. I mean, John's not cheap, but the point is that I, I'm able to make records that in Nashville would cost me, you know, I mean, cutting 26 songs on an album, yeah. like I did on New Orleans, New Orleans, would, in Nashville would cost me, you know, 100 grand. Jeez. And I can do, I can do it, you know, I, I'm able to do it with John. It's been a blessing, and he's, he is his ability and he's a great engineer too i mean he's fantastic and we're recording on you know we don't have the greatest equipment Hmm. but he gets great sounds out of junk (laughs) and he always has and the more we do it the better we get yeah and it's just been a lot of fun and i've been really i hate when people say they're blessed because it sounds corny but i'm totally blessed for the day i met him Mm-hmm. And forever will love Mike Schannenberger for that introduction. Yeah, and uh, and so um, you know, it, it just was an amazing. It was like kismet. And now uh, I introduced a friend of mine called Lee Brovitz that played in Cindy Lauper's first band. You know, uh, and uh, he's been recording himself and uh, and this girl he works with called. A, Gemma Pearl, who's a great blues singer, and and Lee's making, and he's recording with John too. You know, we so I've been able to share that um, that great situation with uh, you coming. So anyway, I, I started cutting these songs, and I was writing this play called New Orleans, New Orleans. I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. yep. and uh, and so I'm writing it, and uh, I'm just closing up here. Give me one second. Sure. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm writing this show, and I've got 26 tunes in it. You know, but in the show, you only do like 
you know, there's only like six whole songs or seven whole songs, you know, and, and, and the rest, you know, but, it, but in the records, you do the whole song. So I've got, we cut, John and I cut 26 songs in like, you know, like a month and a half or something because we had some interest in the play, some big money interest in the play, which ended up not panning out. But, um, so we, we, we did this and, uh, John and I made this record and then we had, you know, I, I was recording so many songs. I was very prolific at that time. It's about 2016. And I'm writing and writing, and writing, and we're recording and recording. You know, I'm recording three days a week or four days a week, some weeks. And so we are doing all these songs. And I kind of divided them up in two records. I made one called Rhymes and Misdemeanors and then another one uh, called Right as Rain. And then. And then this other, no, it was Stories I've Lived to Tell, Mixed Messages, right. Mixed Messages, Stories I've Lived to Tell, and New Orleans, New Orleans. So now I've got these three records with how many songs? I mean, one of them has 26. There's like 60, 70 songs wow. on these three records. That's, that's a and lot. so I was going to start, you know, I don't, I never promote my work. I really don't. I just don't. I'm an artist. I put it out there. And if people come to my website, henrygross.com, and they support me, I mean, some of my fans are unbelievable. A guy came and bought this week every record I ever made for me. Wow. You know, and, and you know, what's on, he bought vinyl for me. I don't even advertise that I have vinyl because I've been hauling around records, for, you know, since since 1972. <laughs> and I have, you know, I have some, some copies left. And fans of mine, if they want like a mint, mint copy. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the covers might have got damaged, but the records are unplayed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they sound great. They're the old, they don't know how to make records like that. You know, even when you buy new vinyl, mm -hmm. they don't know how to press vinyl like they, they yeah. used to. It's not okay. I mean, but, but the, you know, they used to, that was the state of the art. And I have all DJ copies. So that was, the DJs were made on virgin vinyl, you know, not recycled vinyl. So they, they're really great sounding records. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I'm, I'm, you know, I have some fans that do that. So anyway, I'm just about to try and, you know, get some gigs and go out and tell people, at least tell some, whoever I can, about these this 3,000 songs I've got, you know, so that, I, that I'm just putting out those three records. When my buddy Joe Brown from England, uh, who moved to Nashville, uh, Joe Brown was probably the first British rock star. He had like the first big hit that was sort of rock and roll in England. And it was called um, A Picture of You. And Joe had real spiky hair. He looked a lot like David Bowie when he was young. You know, he had mm -hmm. that look. Yep. And in fact, Bowie probably copped his look off Joe Brown. And a lot of people, you know, took their act from Joe. I mean, Peter Noon, I love, he's, he's a good friend, but um, um, from Hermit's Hermit. Yep. But yep. You know, Joe Brown was, you know, Joe Brown was doing Henry VIII it was a big hit in England for Joe Brown. Hmm. And Peter Noon brought it to America. Yeah. I mean, Joe Brown was doing Leaning on a Lamppost by George Formby way before Peter Noon did. Huh. You know? And but Peter's a great singer and you know, of course he made great records. But um but anyway, so Joe Brown was a big star in England, but he never really made it to the United States. You know, circumstance it's funny, you know. Right. Yeah, why didn't you never plug know. me in why didn't plug me into something tell sell two million records? Why didn't Joe Brown come over here and do the cheeky chappy, you know, over here? Um, anyway, so Joe and I became buddies through Roger Cook. 
And Joe had always had a band. You know, it's called Joe Brown and the Bruvers, B-R-U-V-V-E-R-S, whatever that meant. And because uh, Bruvver, because it's the East East End slang, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, he would say like, you know, I'm, I'll be with him, with him, you know, with a V. They just how he spoke. It's like an East End, like a Cockney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was actually born in Lincolnshire, but he grew up in the East End, so he has the Cockney accent. And, you know, he's a big star in England. I mean, he sells, you know, big rooms. And so, so he's had a band. And I said, you know, I, I was talking to him once and I said, uh, you know, Joe, I said, you know, nobody really comes to see Joe Brown to see the band because he's not like a Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing entertainer. You know, he tells jokes and they're hysterical. His delivery is unbelievable. He talks, you know, he has like, tells these funny stories about early rock and roll in England. And so I said, you know, Joe, you really ought to do a solo tour. You know, he plays a million different, you know, ukuleles. He's an amazing ukulele player. He was George Harrison's best buddy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's one of his best buddies. In that little area, uh, John Lord lived over there, the late John Lord from Deep Purple. Um, Alvin Lee lived right next to Joe. They were dear friends. George Harrison, uh, Jim Capaldi lived in Marlowe, right in the next town from Henley on Thames. Was, was you know? George his best man in his wedding? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was at the wedding. You know, Dennis Lacourier was there. John Prime was there from of America. We were the American contingent. <laughs> and, and of course, George's wife, who who I had met, you know, years and years before she was at A and M Records at the, you know. On, she worked at the studio there, mm-hmm. and that's where she met George. Wow, Olivia. Yeah, yep. and so, you know, she was kind enough to introduce me to George, and say, you know, that she had known me. And it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, I mean, it's just an amazing how I met all these people. I mean, Steve Winwood's wife, it turns out, was a plug me into something fan. Hmm. So one night I get invited over to Winwood's house. He and Capaldi are there, and. um I'm going to embarrass myself. There's so many names, and I'm not trying to drop names. But um, the drummer that played on James Taylor's record, on, on Sweet Baby James, an amazing drummer. Gosh, I'm forgetting his name now. So, but he married Nicolette Larson, who I worked with a year on the road with Pump Boys and Dinettes. Yes, yes, yeah. And John Edwards and myself and Nicolette Larson did Pump Boys and Dinettes for a year. I want to ask you and, about that. It's normally when the, the the people are doing the road tours are I don't want, I don't want to say lesser than than what's on on Broadway but but not as I mean the three of you together come on <laughs> that's a great no it was a lot of fun now, now that's Nikki a great cast great. yeah Jonathan was of course Jonathan and you know and I did my thing and we had a, a you know there was. There, it was a six-person cast, and there was a keyboard, two different keyboard players, mostly a, a guy called Jonathan Siegel on keyboards. He was very good, and then there was, of course, Mark Hardwick from the original cast. Uh, he was just a genius. We we only had him for a short period, a couple of, maybe a week. But, I mean, playing with Mark Hardwick was, was a great thrill. Wow. And, of course, Jonathan and Nicky, and then we had Gary Bristol who played bass. Who's a brilliant bass player, who I who I I'd known through Steve Satterwhite, the photographer that does my albums. You know, every 
it's just everything fell together with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so I had these three albums done. See, this is how I, I run off. My wife says, stick to the subject. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I just wander. So one hit wanderer, man. So right. you know, I yeah. just goes where it goes. But that's how you write songs. You know, if somebody says something in it and you think of something completely different and you come up with something great. Yeah. So, so I have these records and just then Joe invites me. I said, Joe, you should do this solo tour. That's all the people want to see is you. And he says, uh, I can't, I can't do it by myself, mate. I'm not like you. He says the way you, you know, the way you play and sing, you can do the show yourself because I've been doing solo gigs a long time. And, you know, and he said, uh, would you do the tour with me? And I said, geez, Joe, I got these three CDs I just made. Anyway, so I wound up going to England, doing three or four, whatever it was, tours with Joe Brown. And uh, just the two of us playing these, all these theaters that the Beatles and the Stones played, you know, all these old, mm-hmm. fabulous theaters. We did the Albert Hall for his 50th wow. uh, anniversary and show business tour. I wound up doing... Uh, Bill Wyman's 80th birthday party with him and everybody you know, from Robert Plant and Van Morrison and you know Mark Knopfler. I've you know met, got had the pleasure of meeting Mark Knopfler a bunch of times wow. and uh, discovering what what a great guy Bill Wyman is. What a gentleman, a real English gentleman. Hmm. And uh, you know, I mean, I played on his birthday party. He gave me a beautiful book that he had written uh, and just you know signed it. Just signed. Signed the one of the one of the octagon-looking album, whatever they call that little honky tonk women. Mm-hmm, yep. Signed it from sister. I had br- you know brought the album. Someone gave it to me. Uh, a friend of mine is a record dealer over in England. Um, this guy called Norman Quinton Jones gave me this album, and, and Bill Wyman signed it for my sister. So I, you know, I asked him to sign it. And he just couldn't have been nicer. What a lovely man, hmm. and what a great bass player, and, and all these great musicians. The best musicians in England were on the show I mean phenomenal players and uh, you know just you know a lot of the same people that were on concert for George you know Henry Henry Van Spinetti the drummer you know who is I mean one of the best drummers he's Henry played drums on uh, Baker Street oh yeah yeah I mean he's a monster Mm -hmm. he's an impossibly brilliant drummer plays plays just his groove is just wow and uh so it's just one thing led to another and all these dreams come true Hmm. and so maybe maybe you don't sell 50 million records but maybe i didn't but so people say to me man you know you should have been bigger and i'm thinking i don't know in a world of give and take i take what's given yeah you know and i got this from a song of mine called lucky me and it sums me up. I, the words are, the waitress asked me if I'm famous. I said, no, but I'm hungry. <laughs> she says, the eggs are cold, the toast is burnt, the bacon's mostly fat. And I say, lucky me. I like it like that. <laughs> that's how you get through life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. That's how you, that's how you live, you know? Yeah. Every day I play it straight. Yeah. I never tempt the hands of fate. In a world of give and take, I take what's given. Mm-hmm. You know that's 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 the life. Yeah. yeah, you you've got to learn to be happy with who you are and what you have. It's the scourge of the of of 
of humanity, the, the wanting more and wanting more. You know, it's funny too. As you get older and older, you're con- you're not so concerned with acquiring more things. You don't want more things. At least I don't. I'm looking for the right people to give the stuff I love too. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's t- time to clean house. <laughs> Who I get to give? Who's going to wind up with that 1954 Stratocaster? You know, who's going to who's going to love it right? Yeah. Who's going who's going and or who's going to take it and sell it and 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 buy buy some dopey car with the money? Right. <laughs> you know, or who's going to play it and make the music that you mean? That's my thought. You know. Yeah. Who can? Because I'm I have a I've. I don't have, you know, as many guitars as I used to, but my, there's no dogs in my collection, and 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 they're not they're not mint, that you know, like the most valuable ones. They're the ones that work. They're the ones that play good. Yeah, they give you the because sound guitars. You want. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, I've been through a million of them, and I, over the years, I've managed to keep the ones that, you know, you can make music on that sounds great. Mm-hmm. That's you know at least. That to me sounds great. Yeah, and so, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, well, Harry, how things go. Yeah, I, I'd like to finish up with just a, a couple more questions here. Um, sure. Uh, one thing, if, going back to 1976, when you had Shannon out, you also were mm-hmm. on all this and World War II album, which was, of course, uh, uh, all the the Beatles songs that different artists performed and you got to do help how, how did you get involved with that project okay that's a, thank you for asking that um when you ha- well shannon was a huge hit at that point right oh yeah <laughs> so you know and and if you want i'll tell you the story of shannon you know of the record even though it's everywhere available i'd be happy to tell it again because i'm very proud of it mm-hmm. because of carl wilson and my you know having done a lot of shows with the beach boys who, which was also a dream come true, real dream come true for me. Mm, I'm sure. You know, similar to getting to know Roger McGuinn. You know, it's just all these things were just, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, you know, they're all amazing experiences. And uh, so I, they called because they were doing this album, and they said, "Would you do? A, would you be a part of it?" And I said, "Sure. Well, who wouldn't want to be a part of that album with all these amazing artists?" Mm-hmm. You know, the poster was up on my wall here. I guess we moved it. Um, but it was sitting here for years, but I, a Woodstock poster outranked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I had a rare poster from all this in World War II. And anyway, uh, from the original movie poster. But um, so all these great artists had done tracks and uh, they asked me to do help. And of course, I did a version that I thought was sort of, I thought, why don't I combine why don't I do help the way I, I would imagine that the Beach Boys would have done it? Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I did, you know, instead of going, you know, when I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help. And, you know, and I was like, ah, full background. And now these days are gone. I'm not so stuff. And I got to tell you, I did it in the key of A, but I was doing it an octave up from John Lennon. I don't know how the hell I sang it. Those <laughs> notes I was hitting back then. And I still sing Shannon, but, you know, I sang really absurdly. High. I guess it was kind of a hook, but. Yeah. Boy, I, I, I wish I hadn't always sung all of that high stuff. I, but, I, you know, I did a song called Hideaway in B flat. I got trouble singing it. 
you know, I don't even, I'm not sure I like it in G. You know, it's like, I think it's three keys too high. But it was just the way I was going at stuff at that point. But anyway, I did this version of Help, and we did, we did it in one take live. I had Alan Schwartzberg on drums, who played the drums on Shannon. I was playing guitar. Warren Nichols was playing bass. And uh, we did it as a trio, and we played it. And I put a lead guitar on it right away. I had brought, you know, whatever guitar I had there, a Les Paul or whatever it was. And I played the little lead part. And uh, we got around the mic and did the background and doubled them. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And everybody loved it. Oh, they yeah. just loved it. And as a matter of fact, uh, I heard from a few people that John Lennon thought that it was a much better version than the Beatles version in that wow. he always thought the Beatles, Beatles did it too fast. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I had yeah I'd heard that. Yeah, that he, he wanted to do it slower, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, they did it like a rock song was at that time what they needed for a hit single. But mine was, you know... When I was younger, so much younger than... He thought I really got the most... I was knocked, you know, what can I say about that, you know? <laughs> you want to talk about... You want to pump yourself up and, man, ain't I great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I could have... And after that, I wrote a couple of songs. I wrote one called, I Love Me, I Love Me Just The Way I Am, and one called, I Am So Beautiful To Me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right after I heard he said that, but you know maybe he didn't say it. I can't say either. But but a couple of different people that knew him said that they, you know they said he had mentioned something about there was a version on that album that he liked a lot. So yeah. hey, yeah. so uh, getting into Shannon, um, you make me you know you you know what I should have asked May Pang. Now you make me think I I got to ask May. <laughs> Maybe she, but she would have told me if she knew. But anyway, yeah. Uh, but getting into Shannon, um, and and you don't have to go through the whole thing, you know. But but basically, uh, how close were you with the Be- with the Beach Boys? Well, I was you know best friends. But I met. I started doing the first show I did with the Beach Boys in, was at University of New Hampshire when they had Ricky Fitar in the band and uh, Blondie Chapin. At that point. When, when you know that was the period of Beach Boys when I got the chance to do my first gig, and it was great because you know there we were up in the University of New Hampshire, which was because we weren't in New York City or something where everybody was distracted. So the beat, you know, I, I went out and did my show, and and if I if I say um, I did a heck of a show, and uh, that was the great thing about being on Dunhill, my record stiffed on ABC Dunhill but all but I had you know I got an agent I started getting gigs with all these bands and people liked me and I was a pretty good live act always I could always go out in front of 10,000 people that never heard of me and blow the room away and I was good at that Mm. you know and and so I wrote music to accommodate that so you know I had been writing songs that were designed to knock out a big room they were you know rock and roll songs you know yeah, and so my gigs went down very well. So I went out in front of the Beach Boys, did very well, and then before they went on, you know, I, Carl came over and said he really enjoyed it. Come in the dressing room. So here I am talking to Carl Wilson, who was like to me a dream, because Carl was the youngest Beach Boy, you know, the youngest of the Wilson brothers, mm-hmm. and he was only a couple of years, a few years, I don't know how. I forget what year he was born, but he wasn't very much older than me. 
And so he was always, you know, the beach boy I most related to. First of all, I could not believe that his voice could come out of a human being. It was angelic. Mm. I mean, Carl was, you know, he sang God Only Knows and Good Vibrations. I mean, his voice and Darlin and, you know, so many great, you know, feel flows and just so many, just amazing songs that he sang, Marcella. And so I could go on, I'm a huge Carl fan, always wasn't, just to, to meet him, I was knocked out. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> so in those days, so there he is in the dressing room, and they're going to go on in, you know, half an hour. And he invites me into the Beach Boys dressing room. So it's, actually, he's got all his guitars, you know, all the guys' guitars, and he's tuning them one by one with this big tuning fork, you know, this giant tuning fork. And I said, Carl, what are you doing, man? He says, well, I'm tuning up everybody, you know, like he had the best ear or whatever. So he was tuning all these guitars, like a half a dozen guitars, and he's tuning them. And I used to tune the, the guitars for Shanana, you know, like yeah. for Elliot, you know, I used to tune his guitar, get it right, and make sure we were right. And so that, and there was Carl doing it. And uh, we turned out to have a lot more in common than that. We were both, we were both the kind of the caretakers of our mom. So anyhow... Uh, he looked after Audrey and I looked after Zelda and we, we we went out to dinner with him you know a couple of times when he was in Nashville and all that and it was great but anyway so in Shanana we got one of the first tuning machines I think it was an even tied you know the automatic tuner mm-hmm. where you plug your guitar in and when the you know when the thing is when the dial is in the center you've, your, your guitar is in tune right mm-hmm. okay so I brought this little, it was a con strobo tuner, not even tied, con, C-O-N-N. So I brought it into the Beach Boys dressing room. And, I, and he said, what is this? So I said, plug in. And I showed him how it worked. That was the end of it. He started hollering. He got the whole group in there and said, look at this thing. I don't believe this thing. <laughs> you know? And I had a gig with him two nights later at Hofstra in Long Island, the Hofstra University in Long Island. And he had five or six of them in his dressing room. He had sent the road crew out to whoever to buy. They maybe had a half a dozen of them, but there was a wall of them. So everybody could tune their own stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of our friendship. Because I think he respected me as a musician, and I turned him on to something. In fact, he gave me his, he liked the way my guitar played better than his. So he, he gave me that blonde Gibson he always played, or one of them. 335 and he said would you get it fixed up for me like yours and I did and he hardly knew me and I got it fixed up and he loved it wow yeah and so you know it's just we became buddies and I was out at his house and you know he invited me to lunch when I was out there um and he you know he had he had this big nice lunch spread that his cook or whatever had put out and uh he had somebody prepare it or whatever because he didn't and um, he had these two white husky dogs, and they jumped up, and they knocked everything on the floor and ate all ate everything. <laughs> and I said, you know, he was so nice, he couldn't stop apologizing. I said, Carl, don't worry about it. I have a crazy Irish setter at home called Shannon, and, I, you know, I've seen this performance many times. You know, and he, he kind of smiled, and he got, when I, as soon as I said that, he got really quiet, and he said, you know, he, he just he got really weirded out. He said, 
I had a dog named Shannon that was hit by a car only about a month ago, and he loved the dog very much. And I thought, well, there's, we both had dogs named Shannon. I didn't know anybody else in my life that had a dog called Shannon. Yeah, that's strange. Wow. So when I got back to New York, I'm sitting on the bed with my Shannon, and I, I mean, you want the whole story, I'll tell you the truth. I lived in a building, and it was a, a lot, it was in Queens, and this building was, I was like the gringo. It was all Latinos. And they're, they're wonderful people because you could rehearse with Jimi Hendrix at four in the morning on a, on a weekday night and no one would say a word to you. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like music was like kind of sacred. Yeah. But if you told somebody else that they were having a party and I don't care if you're, you know, your family just got murdered. If, if you told those guys to shut up, they kill you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I'm trying to write, and the guy, I literally rehearsed my band in my one-bedroom apartment. No one said a word. I mean, talking about drums and bass, you know? Yeah. And so there was a guy upstairs from me, and he had speakers on the floor, and I hear like this through the ceiling. And this went on and on and on, and I couldn't think. So I, somebody said, if you get a, there were these records called environments records. And they said, if you get the ultimate seashore and you put it on, you know, you it's like a record, you know, and it's two sides of a one. It was one side of a record, the ultimate seashore. Mm -hmm. I think the other side was Dawn in the Okefenokee Swamp, and it was a professional recording of these sounds. Huh. So you put the ocean on, and it puts you, first of all, it makes the room cooler. The temperature drops five degrees in your mind. Yeah, yeah. And you don't hear the boop, boop. All you hear is the ocean. So I picked up my guitar and started strumming, and I'm looking at the dog, and I'm thinking about Carl. And I wrote this song. I say it wrote itself. Yeah. You know, if, if, I, if I, I think somewhere I have the original scratch sheet, and um, you know, the little papers I was writing it on, and I just no mistake. There's like a couple of lines crossed out. Hmm. So wow. it was just a kind of a. a one of those things that happens. Yeah. You know, many writers will tell you that you work hard and you write and you perfect things. And there's other times when you don't feel like, like I always tell people I didn't write Shannon, I wrote it down. <laughs> so for the people that hate me because they think it's corny and they liked it 50 years later, they hate it so much that they never forgot it because they remember that they hate it 50 years later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. kind of idiots. And there's a lot of, then of course, thankfully millions of people really love it and, and understood what it was about. And, and it brings them comfort when they have lost pets, yeah. you know, or God forbid, you know, family members too. Mm -hmm. So it's made a lot of people brought a lot of solace and a lot of joy to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's also made, certain um, people uh, they, they just don't get it they yeah. think it's corny some people think it's like a, a right wing ballad I'm not even sure what that means <laughs> is, is a dog dying necessarily a a, uh, a right wing kind of concept yeah, I, I don't I, know I don't get I think that people, one <laughs> yeah I don't get it either I saw some somebody you know, I, don't, I don't do Twitter anymore I got off there I think it's uh, not healthy for people anymore. Mm. I mean, any anything, as I say, any any medium that is not for everyone. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. I, I love I love uh, you know I love all religions, 
but I don't like music that's particular to a religion. Yeah. To a yeah. culture, yes. To a religion, no. I mean, music should be for everyone. Yeah. You know, I don't like, you know, you have to be in a certain club to appreciate the music. Well, Henry, I got to tell you, um, you can count me in the side of the people who loved your song, Shannon, and oh, thank you. <laughs> and and all uh, all your music. It's it's just it's just so much fun, and uh, I enjoy it. But uh, I you mean I, you like you like songs called "The Night You Picked Up the Check" and, <laughs> and "Let's Open a Bottle and Wine." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I I got a kick out of one of your your newer songs, um, "The Fooled Around and Fell Asleep." <laughs> now, yeah, that's, well, that is that a, 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 a play on uh, you know fooled around and fell in love. Well, of course, because Phil Auberg, who played on, who's one of my dearest friends, uh, he played the piano on Fool Around and Fell in Love. He was an Elvis uh, band, yeah, touring, and Phil played on a lot of. He played on Shannon. Ah, and yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, Phil Auberg. I was the first person to use Phil Auberg on a on a major recording, and uh, of course, he played with Peter Gabriel on tours, and then he. Uh, was with Elvin Bishop for years, and Phil does classical concerts by himself. He's a, a gifted classical player, I and mean, he plays with, you know, orchestras around the country. Phil is a, he has Sweetgrass Records, and Phil Auberg, if he has a record called Upright, solo piano record, he was on Wyndham Hill for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he is he's you know the label had George Winston and all these kind of people, and Phil, wow. Phil's you know uh, you know brilliant brilliant player, and um, has made. So many records. I mean, he he plays kind of like he's in that level of playing like Garth Hudson. You know, he's just can play anything, and he's really in. I mean, it's listening to him play solo piano can actually be intimidating. <laughs> you know, he's just he's so, and he can, he's sensitive and he's brilliant, and uh, you know, he's a big Montana boy. You know, yeah, yeah, and he kind of looks like. Uh, you know, one of these uh, mountaineers that you know just came out of the came out of the you know from cutting down trees, and he plays classical piano. You know, hmm. so uh, I don't know why I got off on Phil there, but what were we talking about? But whatever it was. Um, well, Henry, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share with us, and uh, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time, and uh, good luck with your album. I, people should be going out and checking your website, definitely, henrygross.com, and uh, also, uh, I, I very much enjoyed uh, Too Clever for My Own Good. It's a good album, and uh, I Thanks, thank man. you so much for joining us. Well, you're a great guy, and it was you're, you. You were. I hope I, I hope I did a good job for you, and um, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners enjoy it. And it's uh, been a pleasure making music for all of you who are listening all of these years. If you know my stuff, um, I love you twice as much. And I, if you don't know it, well, there's still time. Maybe you'll listen to some of it, and you'll find some joy in it. The last CD was called Too Clever for My Own Good, and it's always good to start with the newest and work backwards. And a big thank you going out to Henry Gross for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond for part two of his interview. And uh, it's so much he's done and uh, so many people he's met. It was a, 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 just so much information. <laughs> I don't know if we can take it all in, but I uh, want to thank him so much for taking so much time to uh, you know, really uh, let us know about his career and all the things he's done. So uh, thank you so much. 
And uh, that is it. That is a wrap for another episode of On Screen and Beyond, our summer movie preview part two. And uh, like I said before, that, that you know we don't know for sure if these dates are going to stick because things keep bouncing around. But as far as we know, that's what it is right now. Uh, could change tomorrow by next week. It could all be different. So <laughs> just to, you know, keep a lookout, but uh, we'll try to keep you informed, of course, like we do each week. So that's it. That's a wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond. So until next time, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. Thank you.